Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Chainsaw by John Kinsella, which first appeared in New Poems' Peripheral Light in 2003, is a piece of verse that cuts its way through the dead wood of our all-too-comfortable lifestyles, its savage wordplay tearing and ripping a seam across the soft underbelly of our domesticated Western bliss. There are no stanzas in this poem. Rather, the poem uses a trunk-like, vertical structure full of enjammed lines that resemble a tree itself, albeit one whose whole and unmolested edges of bark have been chipped and bitten into by the force of a rotating blade of language, or in Kinsella's case by the whirling imagination of his ecologically troubled mind. Living in the wheatlands of Western Australia, John Kinsella is an environmentally focused and celebrated poet concerned at cultivating language as a tool of political and social discourse and change. A self-acknowledged vegan, anarchist, pacifist and supporter of worldwide Indigenous rights and absolute supporter of land rights, Kinsella writes poetry on a mission. And yet his great respect of the poetic form prevents him from merely churning out didactic poems. Instead, his poems are nuanced, sophisticated, complex and multi-dimensional. And this is not easy to achieve within an art form that, at its best, should stimulate questioning and thought rather than simply steering the reader towards a predictable outcome. Kinsella himself, reflecting upon the challenges of creating non-didactic poetry while still remaining politically true to a cause, has written the following. Ambiguity in a poem can be the generator of a desire to reconsider, to alter, to question. Activist poetry, specifically poetry that seeks to halt environmental damage, is about clearly delineated outcomes. And yet, if the poem doesn't enrich the reader in intellectual, spiritual, artistic or emotional ways, its impact is necessarily diluted or lost. It's not that the activist poem needs to be more than statement, but rather that in being poetry, it will necessarily be many things at once, many versions of itself, at least some of which will be beyond the poet's understanding. Perhaps Kinsella's words here give us an insight into why his poetry has remained so popular and celebrated over the last couple of decades, having published numerous poetry collections and having won many literary awards and prizes. I really would encourage our listeners to check out his work if you haven't already done so. But for now, let's just take a listen to his poem, Chainsaw, before coming back to have a chat to the poet himself. Chainsaw by John Kinsella The seared flesh of wood cut to a polish deceives The rip and tear of the chain 
It's a rapid cycling, a covering up of raw savagery. It's not just machine. In the blur of its action, in its guttural roar, it hides the malice of organics. Cybernetic, empirical, absolutist. The separation of church and state, conspiracies against the environmental lobby, enforcement of fear, are at the core of its modus operandi. The cut of softwood is deceptive, hardwood dramatic. Just before dark on a chill evening, the sparks rain out. Dirty wood hollowed by termites. Their digested sand deposits, capillaried highways imploded. The chainsaw effect. It is not subtle. It is not ambient. It is trans-nothing. A clogged air filter has it sucking up more juice. It gargles, floods, chokes into silence. Sawdust dresses, boots, jeans, the field. Gradually, the paddock is cleared. The wood stacked in cords along the lounge room wall. The darkness kicks back, and the cutout bar jerks into place. A distant chainsaw dissipates. Further on, some seconds later, another does the same. They follow the onset of darkness, a relay of severing. A ragged harmonic stretching back to its beginning. Gung-ho, blazing, overconfident, hubristic to the final cut last drop of fuel. Well, welcome, John, to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the Lit Poetry Podcast and to feature your poem, Chainsaw. Before we get to the poem, could you just tell us, our audience, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I've been I've been a poet most of my life, but poetry has been all my life. It's been the kind of uh, the constituent language, if you like, of um, how not only I relate to the outside world, but within my family. My mum was a poet. Um, she published a bit when I was before I was born and. For probably the first six years of my life um she won a couple of local awards and so on and it was an important thing in her life but she stopped writing poetry she said she stopped writing when she got happy which was an interesting thing <laughs> it's made me ponder what poetry is a great deal um i'm still writing it and uh, i don't think it's for me got anything to do with happiness it has a different purpose and i'll talk about that in a second but um it was ever-present. Um, I remember when I was seven years old, my mother reading Milton for an exam. Um, she was she went back to school, university. I was a mature age student and I was very small after she divorced and um, she specialised in literature. And so, you know, studying Milton and reading Paradise Lost Aloud and reading words, words, Prelude Aloud when I was like six and seven and eight, was you know, had a major impact on me. I heard this stuff being read and I loved it. I listened to it like I listened to a story being told. So the, the language of poetry was ever-present. Um, she ended up becoming a literature teacher. Uh, so, you know, that, that there was that as well. And um, I, I don't really know any other way. It is the way we communicate the family. My partner is the poet Tracy Ryan. Our son's a poet as well. He's only 18. He's starting to publish now and 
He's been writing since he was very, very, very small. So it, it is our chosen medium of communication. So we speak. So I imagine the, um, the conversations around the dinner table and that sort of thing when you get together must be uh, very <laughs> Actually, interesting. The conversations around the dinner table are mainly about film, interestingly okay. enough. Okay. It seems to be the place we talk about film. Um, you know, this is a, a, a f big film house as well. And like Tracy and Tim, every week, they, they put an afternoon aside where they watch a movie together um and you know talk about it and so on so it's it's that's kind of an active part of our life as well but there's a connection between the two mediums really because both are impressionistic and enter into your space i mean poetry does it by words to paint visual images in your mind um whereas you know the moving image is quite different from that but can you see a correlation between that oh there is a correlation and in fact i've certainly written quite a few poems on films and I've written a number of experimental novellas and um, short novels based around uh, film so you know yes yeah, like I can see that the, the cinema that interests me in particular is speaking of it is really expressionist 1920s cinema um, I'm really interested in um, you know, black and white cinema and pre-speaking pre, uh, um, speaking, um, cinema I I'm very, very interested in stuff from the 1910s and 20s. But, you know, I have a vast interest in uh, diversity in cinema and all things. Everything I'm interested in, James, is about mm. a kind of range. I, 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 like, I like looking at a lot of things. And one of the interesting things about making poems is because you're compacting uh, language, you're also able to compact a lot of information. So um, maybe the, the, the most interesting skill in a, making a poem is if you can bring a lot of information into a line, seem to make it simple, quotation marks, and have its own uh, kind of emphasis, but it, it has the uh, like computer memory. It has the ability to pack so much. And uh, poems, I'm a great fan of William Blake and... Uh, like Songs of Innocence and Experience, you know, they might seem so simple on so many levels, but I've spent a whole life uh, literally trying to work those out. Yeah, well, Blake is amazing, and he um, and he had a very profound association with Milton too. I think he uh, drew a whole lot of... He did, uh, yes, and I've done a version of... Well, he did a version of Milton, or, or, or you know, Milton, called Milton, and I've done a version of Blake's Milton, and I said, that kind of uh, way of... Uh, poet speaking to poet, speaking to poet across generations is such an interesting thing. You know? Yeah, I, I think I think it is. Um, so, with your poetry, how, how are you speaking to generations? Um, because it seems like you, you know, you've got a very environmental thrust to your to well, your is, to work, is, and yeah. it seems to be you're not just talking to our this generation, but you're also thinking about future generations in particular. So it's not just going backwards; it's going forward as well perhaps, your poetry? I hope so. I mean, my prime interest and purpose, if you like, in life is trying to rectify some of the wrongs done ecologically, socially, uh, and rights-wise. Um, I, you know, I consider myself an activist poet. My life is pretty much based around uh, environmental activism. I'm involved in two kind of, uh, if you like, want a better expression campaigns at the moment trying to uh, save a forest and trying to save very, very rare bushland in the wheat belt of Western Australia. 
and that's an ongoing thing that's 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 really is my life that's that's where i've located my life in trying to rectify these wrongs poetry for me is a tool in that um i as as i've said and as we've sort of been talking about I, i've loved poetry all my life it's the medium i choose to communicate in uh, i live in a house where we communicate but um for me poetry in the end has to be useful i don't see it as a kind of what i call a curatorial um uh artifact or set of artifacts tools um that are on display i see it as a set of tools you use it's very active for me so i'm not particularly interested in a poem lasting into the future i'm interested in the end results of what the poem does lasting into the future and that's a kind of different thing so i write a poem i want it to be a positive thing in terms of protecting the environment um, being active in how we talk about protecting the environment to be part of that it's you know being thought about in a hundred years time as a worthy piece of uh, literature is irrelevant to me I, i really don't care about that what i do care about is that it's active in its time and its future is the the better future brought hopefully by intervening in a problem and making it better so if i write a poem like the uh, chainsaw poem or the bulldozer poem another poem that's used extensively in protests that i wrote some years ago um it's about its ability to make people listen and think about what's happening to the environment and to change the way they behave hopefully uh and to yeah so so that i'm very pragmatic about this poem has to actually have a use for me yes but it's, i uh, actually uh, read something that you wrote which i found fascinating um because i think one of the the downfalls of um political poetry which you named can be that it can it can move towards being very didactic um so you know a bit one-dimensional and you know you're the receptacle of wisdom and you're sort of sort of lumping people and sort of compelling them to think in a certain way but i don't think your poetry does that it's much more nuanced um and i think that's really really important i'll read you back a quote that you actually said in this um article and maybe you could comment a little bit about me about, oh, sorry, about this uh, particular thing. And you said um, poetry, uh, it's, it's there not to tell people what to do but to encourage them to investigate an issue in, a, in diverse ways, to find that language compels us towards liberation and a just position regarding the natural world and our relationship to it. The self as a mirror to the biosphere. Maybe we can write a rhetorical uh, lyric. We can say, we can rant but let the poem open those proverbial doors of perception of which we are not even aware when we write. The awareness often comes later. Tell us a little bit about that because I, I think that's sort of speaking into what you're, what you're, you're saying. Well, it's kind of key because I, I don't believe in proselytizing. I don't believe that... It's, I've just got a set of opinions and a set of experiences. I, I'm no more than that and I'm not worth more than that. Um, but... You know, I, I I do. If a tree's being knocked over um, and uh, a forest is being destroyed, it's self-evident to me, and that's really what I'm talking about. It's quite specific. Now, my opinions around how people should behave around these things are purely my opinions. A poem isn't um, uh, a poem is altogether more complex than a set of opinions. A poem can have a set of opinions, and I think that when a reader um, or a hearer or listener or experiencer of a poem goes to it, it's more than it is about minus the writer of the poem. So there are two things here. First of all, when I write a poem and put it out there, 
I let go of it. It becomes someone else's and I have to be aware when I'm writing it, it will be used in many different ways and not the ways I necessarily, in my opinion, want it to be. So you've got to kind of have an understanding of how language works when you write a poem and know that it can escape you very easily. So when I write, I try and factor in that possibility of change and sort of look ahead and think, well, how might people go with this and try and widen the range of language so it can do all sorts of different things under different conditions. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a poem is in itself um, a, a generator of language. It's part of the whole process of language changing. Um, you know, each generation wants their own set of words. They want their own set of, you know, ways of talking about issues of justice, fairness, and so on. And, you know, you, you get older and you look and think, well, this is, this is the same wheel being talked about. We also wanted this when I was 20. Um, now people in their 20 want it. And that's great. I think to myself, okay, interesting. What are we shifting here? We're shifting language. And language shift is such an vital part. And to respect language shift, which I do. Someone, uh, a 20-year-old, having a, a new set of language and ways of talking about problems I was talking about 30 or 40 years ago, um, is something I totally respect. It's, it's almost, I'm obliged as a poet to understand the transition of language across those decades. Now, when you're writing a poem, you can't know what language is going to be used for 40 years, but you can know that it will be different and that things will change. So there are ways of making poems that allow a kind of dynamism in language that sort of can move with the time. So a poem you wrote 40 years ago will still be relevant now because it's already open to the fact that it's going to change in the way it's read and that language is going to have different meaning in 40 years. So, um, yeah, opinion is only opinion. But, um, you know, there's justice is justice. And um, that is a kind that we know what's fair and we know what's wrong. And uh, that, has, that remains fairly consistent. Um, no. I think you're right. And, um, you know, things like uh, critical theory have, have developed a lot of ways of looking at um, works over time too so i really get that i get those those shifting perspectives and and who knows what sort of critical lenses will emerge um that we're negligent of at the moment um exactly and and i'm sure that will be you know take be the case well it's interesting because i've just uh i've got a book critical book coming out shortly it's uh looking at exactly it's actually saying that you have a responsibility as a writer to understand that you'll be read differently in the future and then you write to factor that in. You cannot control language. The moment you try and control language, you, you're actually reducing its possibilities. But at the same time, you have to be conscious and expect it will be read differently. You know, what you're writing now will be read differently. So there's a kind of both an obligation in that understanding. There's also an excitement, James, a kind of liberation in the idea that, you know, we're, that what you write is no be-all and end-all. And this is why that kind of whole hierarchy of good poem, bad poem annoys me so much because, um, you know, who am I to say? And um, I'm not the best judge of my own work. I know that. I'm not the best judge of anything in particular. But I do know that um, uh, change is, uh, there is desirable change, which is the expansion of people's kind of respect and, the you know, the gaining of more knowledge, all these kind of things. But there's also a kind of bad change, and that is when damaged people's rights are taken, forests are destroyed. And so there's that sort of that conversation that goes on between uh, 
right and wrong. You know, the old discussion that's been going on since the beginning of time. Um, poems are about that. They're kind of dialectical things. There is this kind of uh, conversant thing always happening in the poem. They're living entities. They're kind of beyond. And maybe that accounts for why uh, pop, you know, poetry isn't so popular because it <laughs> it kind of demands that sort of attention that which is kind of an uncomfortable place for a lot of people you know in a in a polarized world of thinking um it's not somewhere that people naturally gravitate towards because it forces that sort of nuanced difficult engagement um that flux that you have to deal with in trying to grapple with um and interpret work and then hear multiple voices and perspectives it's a challenge i think but an important one it is a challenge well it's interesting isn't it because people um on one level, when they experience a piece of art or, say, a piece of music, listening to the lyrics, uh, a song, um, they, on one level, expect to be told something. On another level, they expect to be able to use it for their own purposes. So people tend to remember songs that had deep meaning to them at the time they heard them first and things like this. But, th- but they also want them to do serve a particular purpose. So, uh, you know... Um, a Bob Dylan protest song from the 1960s has to remain a Bob Dylan protest song from the 1960s when, in fact, of course, it can't. Times change. A Bob Dylan protest song in the 60s still has relevance, but its context and meanings have dramatically changed. So you can't ever you can't ever fix things as you want to fix them because you've got a nostalgic view of um, how we remember our past. Poetry is very much about the future, and you said that earlier, you know, you write to the future. Well, I certainly hope I do. I just hope it's a future with, um, you know, that we can breed and there are trees and animals and so on. Um, that's that's my great. Um, that, that's the future I'm writing for. A kind of a, a you know a healthy biosphere future, if that's possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I teach poetry and one of the fascinating things for me is, um, and maybe you can relate to this, is that I often get a lot of um, jaded and um, non, you know, unengaged students who their first impression of a poem is, is negative. But you know, upon discussion in a sort of a class format, if it's done well, they will become lovers of that poem. So it's, you know, we are preconditioned to see and read in a certain way, but... When other voices come in, they can they can change our perspectives, which I think is one of the gifts of poetry. Um, and then it can open new, you said doors of perception, it can actually open new pathways of appreciation that you didn't have before. It, it creates that conversation. True. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely true. The thing you mentioned about a group of people, a kind of community of people listening and experiencing yes. poetry. Yes. You know, as, well, I totally believe that as a, a you know, anarchist pacifist, I believe mm. in uh, in this kind of gathering of individuals into communities. And I think that poetry is a wonderful way of actually getting a group of people together. Yeah, and, and it's sharing. Com- and it's compressed. You can do it in a in a, in a session. Yeah. To, together, it's not like yeah. a yeah a novel that or something other form that takes a long time to unpack. Isn't that amazing? How, as um, I'm sure you have the same experience of thinking about, you know, when we're in school, particularly in a um, later high school, uh, if you were going through to later high school, 
where um, you know I did literature at school. I was very lucky to be taught by a, a fascinating um, educationalist who became an educationalist, prominent educationalist, Bill Green. I went to a rural high school, Geraldton, up the coast of Western Australia, and um, uh, you know I, I'll never forget the first lessons of literature I had with him, where it was sitting in a circle reading poems aloud. Mm. Antithetical class in many ways. Mm. Um, you know, people wanted to be out surfing or something like that, mm. or you know, on on the tractor or whatever it was they wanted to be on. Um, but the communal thing involved brought everyone together, and that remained the strength of the class. And I do think um, you know, people have community of poetry through music all the time. They just don't realise it. Yeah. Um, my my problem is always um, if you only expect. Um, you know, a song or a poem to do one thing because a song or a poem, especially a poem, cannot just do one thing. It does many things, and if you want to keep it just as that kind of poem or that kind of song, then you're reducing um, the great possibilities of language. You know, they've got to be living things. Poems are living things. Um, with the with the poem uh, Chainsaw itself, just changing focus a bit, so I've read it a few times uh, and I've been sort of trying to sit with it and think about it. One, one of the things I really love about it, and I'm not sure if this was partly your intended effect, it, it, and maybe I'm just um, reading my own thoughts into it, but I do love, I really feel like there's a real strong, there's waves of consonants and assonance through through the poem so there's a real a lot of harsh lettering you know the gargles and chokes and you know boots and but there's all these elongated um o sounds so boots and chokes and floods and i feel like i'm being kind of bashed and strangled at the same time by the poem because the elongation of the assonance holds me in this grip of destruction while the, the letters sort of chip away like the like the chain spinning on the edges of the of the wood, is it was is is that something? Am I reading into this, or is that actually something that you're intending through the use of sonics in in your language? In fact, so concretely, so right and accurate are you, is that when that poem was written in its first draft, I was actually in a tense fury because a, a number of chainsaws were going at the same time down the valley. Um, chopping, literally chopping down um, a copse of trees I'd tried so hard to protect. Now, I could do no more, so I went and uh, wrote that. And interestingly, um, another poem that does something similar, the Bulldozer poem I've mentioned before, was written during the Row 8 protest. That was written sort of to take back to the protest site and was full of the sounds of the bulldozers. So these aren't these aren't poems written um, at, at, at a distance of memory. Mm. These are what I would call in situ poems. These were poems written actually in the process of uh, dealing with um, the issue. So, and it, uh, where I live now is in the valley, but where Chainsaw was written was in another valley. It's actually all connected to the Avon Valley in Western Australia, but um, there are lots of little sub valleys. I'm in a different sub valley at the moment, but um, it were it uh, you know it's all valleys things really echo mm. and um, there's nothing more horrifying 
in uh, dueling chainsaws uh, in a valley um, that you know where you know that um, that that kind of back and forth sound is, is almost closing in on each other as as the destruction kind of meets. And the poem is very much about those sounds and about it actually viscerally, almost invading the body. Yeah, that's what I that I got, and that's what I think is so powerful about it. And not only, even visually, and I don't know if this was an intention too. Like the, you know, there's no particular stanzas; it's just one big, you know, long, long run. run. And, and, it, and, and to me, it looks like I think it looks like a tree trunk almost, and it's being chipped away at the edges. And and. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not what you're intentioning, you know, intending as well. But oh no, that is. It is well, okay. Well, oh, that's, that's it. Yeah. If you have a look across all the poems, they're either going. In fact, I, I I do a lot of concrete shape poetry too. But a poem should always, I think, physically represent the basic kind of the structure of what you're doing. Um, I think you know if you're doing um, four line stanzas or three line stanzas, or using you know, fourteen of a sonnet. It should the shape of it should actually replicate the language being used and what the language is trying to represent. Mm. So uh, you know, you think about cinema as well. That's um, that kind of what you capture on the image is there for you. It's representational. But when you add the sound to it and you, the light effects and so on, you're almost shaping it in a different way. These things are very sculptural. The poem is a sculpture in many ways. We are coming back full circle to the to. Uh... We are. Yeah, theatre. We yeah. are. And, um, and I think we, we maybe have to because all these things are interconnected. And, um, you know, poems, as it says in the Chainsaw poem, you know, the, um, about the organic is that um, the, the chainsaw, which is inorganic, destroying the organic, is also caught in this kind of organic process of human rapacity. Um, and and it, the interesting thing to me in the poem is the chainsaw is an object. Um, humans have made the object. They use the object for all sorts of things. This object also connects with, you know, a whole kind of empirical um, uh, discussion about, uh, you know, um, materiality and, and uh, spirituality and where the two do or don't link. And um, objects in my poems very often are, are sharply delineated against the background of the spiritual which in some ways maligned or destroyed or damaged by the object um, so any consumerist um, any industrial kind of usage always becomes an antithesis in my poem to a spiritual choice yeah there's that metaphorical edge i can I can see those ideas sort of bleeding out of your your, your language that way are you a bit of a fan of the images um and you know william, oh, yeah, william, sure. carlos williams I, was, how, can, uh, how can you be a how can you be um, a sort of modern poet without, you know, of course, and actually, interestingly, not just the, um, you know, uh, the more prevalent images, but even ones who are slightly maligned these days, like Amy Lowell or something, I find quite interesting. And, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm no fan of Ezra Pound because of his politics. But, you know, when you think of the, um, the, the station poem and that little glimpse, um, you know, faces on the wetback, that amazing moment, you know, it, uh, an image can capture so much. What a poem to me often is, is uh, a series of sound connections between images that allow ideas to flow. You mm. can build the ideas around those. I often, when I'm walking around in the bush and so on, and I'm outside, I kind of go through a process, conscious or unconscious, of almost gathering images. Uh, you know, you are gathering images. If you expose yourself to the outside world, you're kind of 
exposing yourself to series, almost cascades of images. It's um, it's an interesting process and not one you can willingly control. It just happens. Yeah, but when you write with those images, you preserve the dignity of the reader because then they have to put the pieces together and they go on that they journey, do. which is lovely. They do. Mm. That surely that's we respect our readers and we think the reader has their own set of images and experiences they've gathered and they can almost fill in the gaps and go with it. I've got a great belief in the reader. I believe much more in the reader than the writer. I always have. I really do. I think that the greatest art is to be a reader and a listener, an experiencer. Um, we can all create. All of us can create. We all can. Um, but not all of us wish to actually put the time in and listen and read in maybe the way we could. So I have a great respect for the listener and the reader and, and the experience, as I say, because poetry is such a visceral thing. You can feel it through your body. You, you don't even have to see or hear it. You can almost feel it. physical vibrations. It's a very physical thing, poetry. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, it's a marvellous thing, isn't it? Um, it's probably a good place to, to finish uh, because we're leaving our audience on a really good note because they are creators in this process of poetry when they read well when when they open themselves up to those experiences they are the artists which is a lovely thought to finish on i think john maybe they are indeed james and i've enjoyed talking to you i wish you a good day um and uh i say hello to your uh, listeners and this is a good experience this is what it's about yeah no it's great it's about, about, it's about creating a community as well so thank you john So it's time to finish up this week's podcast and say goodbye. I really hope you enjoyed our interview with John Kinsella and our discussion of his poem, Chainsaw. Let me leave you with this thought. The chainsaws in Kinsella's poem only cease their activities at night, but there is an ominous sense of their relentless tomorrows, which, of course, are our tomorrows. The chainsaws are us, and they will go on ripping into the world until all its resources are used up. We really need to do more to change this situation. While we always have the capacity to act like chainsaws, we still retain the choice on whether we fill our tanks with selfish desires that fuel destruction, or whether we even pull the cord to start the chainsaw in the first place. I'll see you next week. Chainsaw by John Kinsella The seared flesh of wood cut to a polish deceives The rip and tear of the chain Its rapid cycling a covering up of raw savagery It is not just machine In the blur of its action In its guttural roar It hides the malice of organics Cybernetic, empirical absolutus, the separation of church and state, conspiracies against the environmental lobby, enforcement of fear are at the core of its modus operandi. The cut of softwood is deceptive, hardwood dramatic. Just before dark on a chill evening the sparks rain out, 
dirty wood hollowed by termites. Their digested sand deposits, capillaried highways imploded. The chainsaw effect. It is not subtle. It is not ambient. It is trans nothing. A clogged air filter has it sucking up more juice. It gargles, floods, chokes into silence. Sawdust dresses, boots, jeans, the field. Gradually, the paddock is cleared. The wood stacked in cords along the lounge room wall. The darkness kicks back, and the cutout bar jerks into place. A distant chainsaw dissipates. Further on, some seconds later, another does the same. They follow the onset of darkness, a relay of severing, a ragged harmonic stretching back to its beginning. Gung-ho, blazon, overconfident, hubristic to the final cut last drop of fuel. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.